Hello, Sarah. Are you coming in hot, Jen? Are you fixing your levels? <laughs> Listen, I try to fix my levels. Listen, you guys, you don't know how much <laughs> Eric comes at us with turn down your mics, get up on top of it, get hot, get cold, make out with the microphone, don't make out with the microphone. <laughs> what I am confused about is it's like get up on the microphone, but then turn it down. But don't be too hot. And I mean, to be honest, like, it, what kind of question, what kind of request is that of us? Obviously, we're going to be hot. <laughs> We're doing hot girl ship all the time. <laughs> all the time. Listen, I often just have to yell inside of a classroom. That's what I have to do. And that's, I can't turn that down. Listen, sometimes you listen to episodes and you're like, do I sound like this? I still get that. I know that you oh, listen completely. to them. Like, you're very good. You listen to them multiple times. But I'm always like, I don't know why anybody would listen to us. But hi, everyone. Welcome to Fade and Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And we have a very exciting show for you today. But first of all, we we have to do some housekeeping, which is... Okay, I'm um, ready. Some of you out there may have noticed that we are running advertising here on Fated Mates now. Um, And so we just want to let you know that we are running, as you can tell when you listen to these episodes, what's called 60-second mid-roll ads. Although, spoiler alert, they're never 60 seconds. We have a lot to say. It's fine. We're just blabbermouths coming in hot. (laughs) And so, uh, but we want to let you know if you're an author or you, you know, work with products that you think Thetamates listeners would like, you can always reach out to us at advertising at thetamates.net and uh, talk to us about ads. You'll get Eric at that email address and um, he will help you find your way with us. We are currently booking ads in the summer and beyond so we love yes. you and the best way if you're not interested in advertising on database the best way for you to support us is to support our advertisers right buy those books take those edibles take how are those edibles working for you still okay listen it's amazing are you every i take one every night sleep like a baby mr reed's romance is like awesome good for you basically like i told you dubby <laughs> I don't, I don't even have to really get into it, but yeah. No, I mean, I told you so there. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. Um, listen, that is, so this is, they are not a sponsor this week, but last, but they were a sponsor last week. And the, those are microdose gummies. Jen likes them a lot. I'm pretty sure that you can still use the code FATAMEATS for 30% off with them. Yeah, I would imagine for a while. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay, here's another point of order. If you are listening to this podcast on the day it comes out, May 18th, and you live near Connecticut. Oh, yeah. Come see me. I am going to be at RJ Julia Bookstores in Madison, Connecticut tonight, May 18th, with Christina Lauren. Both Christina and Lauren will be there. And the next night, Thursday, the 19th, if you are in the Chicago suburbs, I will be in Naperville at Anderson's Bookshop, although it's off-site and it's ticketed, and I think they're close to selling out. So don't just show up. Mine too, but they did move us to a larger venue, which I know they did in Chicago too. Yes. um, Because Christina and Lauren are. Christina and Lauren, and we will be joined by Sonali Dev. And they don't know, but I have a very fun game planned, and I... I'm not well, going to tell you about now. it. They're, no, they listen. They're, they're on tour, definitely listening to Fade of Mates the second it drops. 
it's fine. It's it's I'll they'll they'll see it afterwards and then the week after I'll tell you it's really fun. I'm excited about it. So you could see us. Yeah. And Christina Lauren. Hi. I will have uh pins and stickers for faded mates. Come say hi. We love you, magnificent firebirds. We gotta get also, I think we maybe said this here. We're just now we're down the rabbit hole here. It's fine. Um, I think we maybe said I know we said it on Twitter, but we really want an artist out there to design us a magnificent firebird. And yes. we will pay you to do this. Um, but I accidentally said on Twitter that I wanted this to happen. And then the bots came and it was terrifying. So I deleted the tweet immediately and regretted my life decisions. Um, but if you are out there and you are an artist or you know an artist um, and yes. you would like to design us a magnificent firebird to put on like stickers and possibly T-shirts, we want that please. And I would say stay tuned within the next few weeks. We are going to have some other fun opportunities where we're just trying to like nail down dates and locations where you can see us together. <gasps> I mean, I'm just excited about seeing Jen. Really? Oh, ever. God, me too. Summer Listen, is so you guys, close, everybody. I have a book out in August and I am really, really trying to get them to send me to Chicago <laughs> so that I can just hang with Jen and we can all hang out together. It's going to be amazing. It's all going to work out. I feel it. I feel it in my bones. Okay. This week, we re- are reading Butterfly Swords by Jeannie Lynn. And if you remember listening to our Jeannie Lynn Trailblazer, which was in March, um, this was her first book. It is a terrific. Sure doesn't read like a first book, does it? Oh, no. It's am- I, it Listen, this is one of those books that I just – I read it again this week, obviously, to prepare mm-hmm. and was com- was completely like, oh, my gosh, it was better than I remembered, right, mm-hmm. The best, which is the best feeling. Um, so just a brief overview. This was published in 2010. Jeannie tells a story on our episode of kind of like the story of how she came to write it and then how it got published. She won the Golden Heart Award, and that kind of opened some doors. It was originally published by Harlequin. Right? Harlequin UK. Yes. Right. Mills and Boone, essentially. Mm-hmm. It has and, a, and and it's interesting because as I was reading it this time, and I hadn't read it since we had spoken to her on the Trailblazer right. episode, um, but she had said that her editor um, was from Mills and Boone there. And, um, and I thought it was really fascinating because there's a lot of uh, English spelling in this book. Oh, Did you notice interesting. that? No, not really, but okay. Yeah. I believe it. Huh, cool. Like these characters definitely say aluminium. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, you guys. They don't say that. They don't. Okay, so <laughs> here's the thing. The other thing, the reason that we had Jeannie on as a trailblazer is she was the first Asian-American writer writing Asian characters in historical romances set in Asia. And this is the first book. So it's set during the Tang Dynasty in the 700s. Um, our main characters are Ai Li, who is uh, the daughter of the emperor. Yeah. And a surprise princess. Yeah. Princess in disguise. It is a princess in disguise. And her, it. like, barbarians, the word that you use all the time, um, kind of Listen. consort lover – Liam. No, let me see. Ryan. Let me think. Hold on. I listened to the audiobook, so I wanted to get this yeah. pronunciation right. It's like Riam. 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 That's how I read it in my head. Riam. Riam. Yeah. And she's Eileen. And the plot of this. And he's and just a big just, brutish. They call him a lion. 
Yeah, essentially, oh, it's for I, it. okay. We're going to talk about him in a minute. There's so many things that are amazing about this book, but Eile, the plot essentially opens where she is supposed to be getting married to a warlord named Lee Tao. A bad dude. And this is an arranged marriage. Classic warlord. <laughs> Classic warlord bad guy. Unless the warlord wants forever, then it's fine. It's different. Um, it's I'm pretty sure Lee Tao gets his uh, gets a book. Later. Later in this series, yeah. Perhaps it's Farewell, My Concubine. I'll have to look, which is such a great title, too. You keep talking. I'll I'll figure it out. Okay. You look it up. She discovers, though, essentially on the eve of her wedding, that Li Tao is responsible for – is essentially betraying her father, the emperor, and is responsible for one of her brother's deaths. She had five brothers. Brother number four has died, and Li Tao is responsible. And so she is – she knows that she cannot marry him. She has to return home to to Shang'an and tell her father – that this man is actually not an ally, but instead an enemy. Mm-hmm. And on the way, like kind of out, she's a she meets this foreigner. And Riam is, it's from the Middle East, essentially. Like they call him sometimes the Turk is really the closest we get to maybe mm-hmm. knowing exactly where he's from. And he has, you know, traveled across essentially Europe and Asia and now is in China and he he's a fascinating character he knows he will never go back home like there's he barely survived the year-long journey there this is Mm -hmm. just what he's gonna do now is like fight in the hinterlands on the border of China and essentially be a you know in one of these like kind of mercenary troops he and also it's important to note like he's wanted he's a wanted criminal or at least he's not wanted but he He's in danger as long as he stays in China. Wait, I'm going to pause. Li Tao does get his book. It's the next book in the series, The Dragon and the Pearl. And, of course, it's with Ling, the emperor's consort. Yeah, I wasn't sure which the title was, but I knew it. Anyway, they meet. The meat cute is really a meat poison. Because what it. happens is he is starving, well, he right? Has he's no got no money, yeah. Yeah, he's gotten the shit beat out of him. He has no money. He's been separated from his soldiers. He thinks that they're all dead and he's the only one who survived. He and so he's essentially begging. And she gives him this bowl of rice that was intended for her and it knocks him out practically. Um, okay, he gets roofied. I know that you're doing the plot overview, but whatever. We're stopping now because I want to pause and discuss this moment, okay? Because there are a couple things that are going on in this moment that I think are really interesting. One, she chooses to – this whole scene is in his POV, which is really interesting because he's so, like, deeply ashamed of the idea that, like, he has to beg. But he's, like, gearing himself up to this point where he feels – where he's going to beg because he's so hungry, right? He sees them arrive, this, like, group of people, because she's surrounded, of course, by guards, because she's being brought to her marital bed. Well, and she's dressed as a man. And she's dressed as a man. That is where I am going, because you know I fucking love this shit. (laughs) She's dressed as a man, and he is like... (laughs) What is this nonsense? <laughs> right. Like, immediately I can tell this person, that you are. This is clearly not a man. And um, and she's not because she's a princess, butterfly swords and all. But she's still, like, the, at later we discover when, when she meets um, Lady Ling, um, when the moment happens with Lady Ling, that she's, like, her everything about her is, like, 
pure, distilled, like, well-trained yeah. Chinese princess, right? Right, right. Dutiful daughter, um, rule follower, and she, like, right, she moves like she's been trained in this particular way. But So it's this great moment where she offers him her food. Yeah. She, like, she has it in a bowl, and she gives it to him, and he's, like, a goner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> from that. I mean, the like, jump. that's it. Done. Like, he just can't, he can't quit her. No. And so then, I'm sorry, go on. There's poison involved. Well, so he kind of eats it and she goes off, right? I don't know. They, they're they separate. People. Yeah. And he realizes, like, he's getting groggy. And he realizes that he, that the food must have been drugged. And it was intended for her, so she's in danger. But because he's, you know, this huge hulking guy, whatever, Boys, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's, it's yeah. not. I just, I just finished watching The Princess Bride with, with my daughter, um, <laughs> and there, it's not his fault. He's the biggest and the strongest. Right. No, he doesn't I even mean, exercise. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. So he basically goes back to to save her. He knows that she's in danger, and they end up on. Like, essentially on the road together. She convinces him that he should take her back to Shang'an. And uh, he's kind of like. Excuse me. Point of order. They have a bet. <sighs> they do. That's true. Okay. You do it. Okay. <sighs> oh, my God. It's so it's good. So good. Okay. It's so good. So she okay. has. So she's. So we don't know she's a princess. Or do we know right. she's a princess? We, we don't. don't know she's a we princess. do. She says that her father's a tea merchant. We don't find out until the old man, the fisherman. Yeah, tells us. much later. I right. think that's such an interesting reveal, too. Like, what a cool thing that Jeannie's done putting the information in the mouth of, like, yes. some, like, literally, like, a character who's barely there. Yes. We don't know she's a princess, but we know that. So her father's a tea merchant, we've been told. And we know she is, like, a skilled warrior like she has she's a sword she's a bladesmith right a blade or or like she's she's a a blade woman um and she's able to she has these butterfly swords and we learn later that like she has smuggled them with her on this journey because they were perfectly fitted to her no one else could use them if they They were not her exact size Exactly. Um, and she was taught by her grandmother how to fight, which is pretty badass and great. And so, and he sees this, like he has, uh, like this book, talk about adventure romance, right? Like, yes, I want to, I want to set that aside and come back to it. But like, we're talking about an adventure romance here, which is fun, really very fun. Um, and so they have seen each other in combat. And now he sort of is like, looking at her with her swords and, you know, they're talking about her swords and she, they make a, he makes her bet. It's basically like, you can come at me 10 times. You can like attack me 10 times and I will do nothing but defend myself. But (laughs) if I win, you have to kiss me. And she's like, okay, but if I win, you have to take me to the Imperial city. And, He's like, remember, P.S., see earlier note about him being a total goner at this point, right? Like, <laughs> So he's going to take her to the Imperial City anyway because, like, no way is he just going to let her, like, you know, roam about the countryside, right? He's going to keep her safe. But he's like, fine. 
and they fight, and he wins. And <laughs> this first kiss. I would like to spend a lot of time talking about kissing in this book. This first kiss is, I mean, it is one of the best kisses in romance, I think. It's so lush. It's so full of promise and longing, right? It's so tactile. It's so sexy. And the thing is, is this is why I honestly get really mad at people. Okay, and I'm sorry. I'm just going to go off on my little rant. I get really mad at people who are like, it's a slow burn. Like, this book is a slow burn. They don't have sex until like 70%. But the kissing, the longing, it's so present in the way that they interact with each other. And this first kiss is honestly like, I... I it's I felt the same way. The first perfect. time I I'm, – I'm sure I can find a Twitter thread where I wrote about this kiss years ago when I first read this book because I was like, this is how you do it. It, it is shreds a- them both, right, emotionally and yes. physically. They Like they are both like destroyed by this kiss. But even in the mo- – like so in the moment, right, this is her first kiss too. She's never kissed anybody before because she's a fucking princess. This is – all. I want to put a pin in that for just one second because I do want to also say related to the slow burn issue. Like, this is a good example of how slow burn can work really well because, one, as as Jen just said, like, the longing and all of that stuff is still in here. The kissing still happens, right? Like, it's just not consummated until late in the, in the story. But also there is a really good reason why they can't bang. And yes. that is she is a fucking princess. Like, yes. And she yes. is headed to her marriage bed. Like, there is – she is untouchable in about 17 different ways. Right. The plot of this book, this book is so smart. Everything about it is just so brilliant. The way it's conceived and the way it is is laid out, which is you are really used to a lot of, you know, regency romances, like really lay the blueprint for like, oh, well, we can't be together and it's like forbidden. But listen, this shit is forbidden. And here's mm-hmm. the thing. He's an outsider, right? Mm-hmm. He's this barbarian. He the, He's the white devil. <laughs> and the ghost, he, ghost, the ghost, something. right? This book wouldn't work Mm-mm. if he was Han, if he was Chinese, because any other person that was raised in this culture would know I cannot be with this woman. I cannot be alone with her. Even if she isn't the, a princess, this like just literally cannot happen. I would have to turn her into the magistrate. Only an outsider would be kind of willing to break those rules because they don't realize the gravity of those rules. Mm-hmm. So his whole relationship with her is, of course, completely forbidden, but he and he knows he shouldn't really be fucking around with her, but taking her somewhere. Oh, no, but this is what's really fascinating, right? It's like going back to this kiss. He has such swagger, right? Oh, like God. when it's over and she's like, okay, well, I guess that was a <clears throat> fine. And that was mm, fine. Mm, mm-hmm. I feel that was nice. Thank you very much. This is a good match. And she and he's like, yeah, it was. <laughs> yes, he wants her. Yeah, and he's so... entertained the whole time by how much she wants him, right? Like, he knows how much she wants him. And so at the beginning, I mean, this is, 
Jeannie threads this needle so beautifully because at the beginning, he knows how much she wants him. And he's like, I'm going to kiss her. Like, we're going to make out. Like, there's a pretty heavy, like, make out scene that comes a little later. And then the moment he realizes, like, oh, shit, she's going to her husband. Like, she's, like, she's basically married, right? Like, she's promised to this man whether or not they've actually, like, had the ceremony. It doesn't matter, right. He then realizes the gravitas of her situation and pulls back. And then his knowledge of how much she wants him starts to destroy him, right? Yes. And it's so beautifully done. The characterization is so beautiful because nothing has changed about his understanding of her feelings for him. It's only external pieces that have suddenly made this internal relationship impossible. This is a very important lesson in co- in conflict that you can learn from this book and how to layer it beautifully. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Charlotte Howard, author of Secret Verses. Sarah, this has a great opening. Lady Anne Towson discovers a poem that has been written about her slipped under her front door, and she can't help but hope that it is Matthew Everly, the young man she's had her eye on for quite a while. But here's the thing. I don't think it is this Matthew Everly character because every time she and Matthew are out together, they are shadowed by one mysterious Sir James Bryan, who sounds like trouble, but... In a good way. In a great way. (laughs) He is a agent for the crown, and whatever it is that is going on might be some sort of shenanigans and business that could shake the very foundations of England itself. What is going to happen? You'll have to read it to find out. This one is for Beauty and the Beast lovers, for Marriage of Convenience lovers, for long-time longing in romance novel lovers, um, and also for anyone who likes a hidden identity. And we all know I really like a hidden identity. You can find out more about Secret Verses at the website of Charlotte Howard, which is charlottehowardromance.com. And this book is available in print, ebook, and on KU. So you should definitely check it out. Thanks to Charlotte Howard for sponsoring this week's show. For a good part of the book, he doesn't actually realize that he he can tell that she comes from money. She's special. Right. He can tell that, you know, that there's more to her than meets the eye or there's some sort of secret. He has no idea. It's the emperor's daughter. But what he does know about her is that she has essentially like honor and a, a set of beliefs that mm-hmm. she lives by. And that the other thing that he realizes is, like, I'm this, like, nobody. I don't live by a code the same way she does. Mm -hmm. And so I have to really live up to the standard for her because if I let her ruin her honor or not live according to this code or break these, right, then I will have led her down this path. And it's not about her being a princess. And it's really not even about her being a virgin. It's about him respecting her Values. Yeah, her code, which is so fascinating because while he is doing this work, right, like while he he is performing this for the reader. Yeah. Um, this sort of like not understanding of her like bedrock nobility, right? Small end mm-hmm. nobility, yes. right? The what's happening on the other side is they ultimately at about a half the halfway mark of this book, like almost exactly at 50%, they get to her parents again. 
And this character who has been so deeply committed to her bedrock understanding of right and wrong, right? Yes. To the point where, like, we don't fully understand what his deal is at this point, but, like, we understand that he he sort of says to her, like, I've done bad things. Right. And they have this conversation where she's like, well, what kind of bad things? And she said, he sort of explains that they're, like, bad but not really bad. Yeah. And he <laughs> and she's like, okay, I'm actually really grateful for that because if they had been bad, I would have asked for your life. Like, I would have fought you. Yeah. Um. You know, because you, you know, you would have deserved it. Like, again, that sort of small end nobility. And he says to her, like, well, you wouldn't have won. You're not strong enough. And she's like, just a girl. the fight is not about winning, right? Like, yes. it's like about the nobility. It's about my code and my honor. And like, if I die, I die, right? Well, I mean, and like, you know, she's so- Put a her- pin in that for the end, right? right? Like, this is this- Right, of course, right? So then, but then she gets to her parents and she is so certain that she will get to her parents and she will say to her father, um, Li Tao killed- my brother, your son. Right. Right. And he is a bad man who is doing bad things. And like, there are all these political machinations. And like, this is a bad match. You've sent me to this man and you did not know what he was. Right. Right. Because she cannot conceive of the idea that her father would not have known that, would, mm-hmm. would have known this and also sent her essentially to the wolves. Right. Right. And it becomes clear. That, like, oh, no, he did know. And he did it because, like, this is just politics. Yeah. Right? Like, this, right. it's okay. Like, men do things in war. Men do things in politics. And he is my enemy, but you're going to make it right. And so, yeah, I'm sending you to a bad man to be married. Right. And she is like, what is, like, it is earth shattering for her. Okay, so, you know, this is a long-term marriage between her family. She's the youngest at 19, is the youngest of six. She has five older brothers, right? And the only girl. And the only girl. And the other thing she gets told, like, when she reaches them, is that his in order to sort of kind of consolidate and make sure that the emperor's power, you know, he, it's shaky, is he is going to essentially make her mother second wife and sort of bring in this, like, fan favorite, right? Mia. <laughs> and therefore... Listen, Who I'm we sorry, know Luke. at this point, um, we know the hero knows her, but we don't know how. We don't know how. And so, and this is another thing that, you know... Oh, I would destroy Eileen Eileen is like... Heaven. What are you talking about? Yeah, like this is you your born six children you've been married this, for 20 yes. years. What are you talking about? Yeah, and so she goes to her grandmother and her grandmother's kind of like, eh, it does seem kind of like bullshit. Let's get, you know, like <laughs> why don't you go and I'll just sort of like pretend that Bless I have you for a while and grandmas by the <laughs> way. Romance grandmas are the best. I I live to be a romance grandma in real life one day. Mm-hmm. But so the thing about the like the, the political machinations is that and I I really respect this about Jeannie too, about the book is Eile, we suspect right kind of from the beginning, honestly, is I mean, from the beginning, I was kind of like, she's her father knew, right? Like she's so young and naive. Right. But she is never shown to be foolish. It's never like you're naive and silly. It's no. you're naive and principled. 
and and it's these other people around you who are not living up to the family's like very honorable reputation and the way that she was raised mm-hmm. right and i really i really liked that too it was there was never any time when i felt like okay even though she didn't quite get it that she was like dumb or young or silly it was always that she was doing the right thing for the right purpose and therefore really admirable it's really magnificent the way this book is put together especially because so at this point so the first half of this book is a road trip right right and now before we talk about the road trip i just want to point out back in season one we had a road trip interstitial and we did talk about this book briefly but you know not everybody listened to season one and even i don't remember anything about we said so we're just going to talk about the road trip again right the lion's share of you we did not yes. listen to that episode um but also i think we're i'm smarter about road trips at least I don't know if you are, but I mean, meaning <laughs> I think you were probably pretty smart before, but like, I'm thinking I, I actually just wrote a road trip book. So like, I have been thinking a lot about yeah. what road trips mean in romance. And one of the things that I think goes on in a road trip, the sort of purpose of a road trip is to take two characters out of their existing experiences, like their existing world and give them freedom in the journey to discover more about themselves and to sort of change their path, right? Like literally right. change Literally, their path, right. Literally and figuratively. So um, I think what's really interesting here is that there is this first half is a very, um, they are both pushing against an identity that they have been, they have always had. Yes. Um, and so we're sort of given this idea that, um, that, that Eileen is, has we don't know very much about her, but there is a mo- there are several moments where we start to where Jeannie starts to reveal pieces of her. Um, we start to see we see um, they are they're put in a position of having to kind of like depend upon the kindness of a group of fishermen, and it's that it's at that point in the book when we discover like oh she's she's actually not just like some rich girl she's a princess right. right. Um, and then later we meet the head of the imperial, the like palace's courtesans, mm-hmm. um, who is now like retired. Right. And these sort of ancillary characters, these side characters in the road trip, uh, along the road trip piece, do the work of showing us like who these characters were before and who they versus like and how they have changed. And I think a lot about that in romance about how side characters are often um like the best side characters are used in this manner, in this like way mm-hmm. to sort of point to the evolution of the character and tell the reader like this character is changing and you you didn't know it necessarily, but I'm telling you because I knew them before or I knew. And so I love a moment where like a woman who has potentially been with the hero notices like, oh, you're into her more than you into were ever me. into me. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think there are some really magnificent little road trip moments along. This is why, you know, we talked about it in the road trip interstitial because it is such a like it's such a great example of a good one. Yeah, well, so, okay, so you talked a lot about what is important about character in road trips. I mm-hmm. want to talk a lot about why road trips are important for setting. Mm. So one of the things that I don't know if you remember when we talked about Millivane, when we talked about Heart of Blood and Ashes, is I was like, one of the things I I get a little frustrated 
I'm a bad reader of fantasy is I'm always like, why are they fucking walking around everywhere? <laughs> like, what is going on? Why are all these books like them just mm-hmm. slogging through Middle Earth or whatever? And my friend Brittany said something very smart. And she said basically, well, or no, this was – okay, wait, sorry. I'm going to say this again. A friend of mine from my, like, romance book club here in town said something really smart, which was basically like, well, that's how you get to know the world. Like, the world is a character too. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I was really tuned into this time is how much the road trip like tells us about the setting, right, of China in 758, but also like sort of their knowledge and interaction with with that. So, mm-hmm. for example, the first town that they kind of go to, you know, they're like kind of, you know, he's able to find like the brothel or whatever. And she's right. kind of like, have the you ever been here den. before? Right. And he's, she's like, have you ever been here before? And he's like, no, but like all these towns are the same. Or, but it has a wall, right? And then later on there's like an unwalled city. And, you know, like – um you know, the whole part about the the Jade Gate at the end, mm-hmm. essentially at the end of China, you know, her feelings about being in Shang'an at the imperial, like at the imperial court versus her um, feelings about going back home to the place she grew up in. And so, you know, I thought it was really smart to make the, like to make the world a character because for I assume, I mean, this Jeannie Lin was the first person, and as far as I know, is still the only person writing historical romances set in the Tang Dynasty. So she has to introduce us to that world. She's, I think, smart to assume, like, these dummies probably don't know anything about this, right? <laughs> Accurate. So yeah. let me let me tell them this is what life would be like, and you can see that from the ground in a different way. Yes. And so I found myself really thinking, like, this is super smart about, like, the you know, some of the good stuff about, like, you know, the horses and bribing people and getting on the laundry carts and the adventure part, but also just sort of the, like, how do they – how do they get around? I mean, in the part where, like, she finally leaves her grandmother's house and she's going to kind of, like, maybe go after him and then they end up in the at the stable. She's, like, stabling her horse. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, we had another horse like that. And she's like, is he still here? I was oh. like, yeah, right? I loved it. <laughs> so I just – I so I think that's the thing about a road trip is it it's a character-building thing, but it's also, like, where are they? Right? Where yeah. are they? Where are they yeah. in the world? Yeah. Oh, so good. And yeah, I think that's really, I think it's a really smart, it's a smart way to start a series. Yes. It, particularly a series set in a location that is, you know, not as common. Right. Right. So. All right. I would like to talk about. Well, I don't want to talk about the ending yet. I want to talk about – I have something I want to talk about. Okay. I want to talk about um, what some readers might refer to as head-hopping. Yes. The narration I, of this is yeah, very interesting, it's right? It's really fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this book, as you're reading through, it's, again, so published in 2010. So it's not, like, super old, but it is, like, last-generation romance. Yes, And I think what's really fascinating is it throws out the convention of uh, a scene from the heroine's perspective and then a scene from the hero's perspective. There is a a mashing of it. And it's Mm -hmm. not – it's not – and I – and again, I I think it's so fascinating because there is nothing messy about this. It is extremely easy to follow. Um, We are not head-hopping. 
um, because it is chunks of text, but there is no break. You are reading mm-hmm. along and you're in, you know, Eileen's um Eileen's POV. And then like something happens and the next paragraph, you're just in Riam's POV. Right. Yep. And I think it is so fascinating. And I was thinking a lot about the fact that it actually inc- it helps with the pacing of this book. Mm-hmm. It is so fast. Yes. The, the read on this is so fast. And also, it's not very long. Right. It's a category. No. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, I want to talk about that, too, like how she packs in this like <laughs> massive story into it's a- it's a so good book, right? I, mean, I this book is so good, everybody. I love it so much. Yeah, okay, sorry. It's I'm really sorry. great. No, so I just think it's really interesting from a writing perspective. There are some choices narratively that really keep the pace of this book as fast as possible. And that's one of them. Like every time, and this is something that when you do, you know, follow the convention of one scene in one character's perspective, one scene in the others, you struggle often where like to know yeah. like, well, how much information do I have to get onto the page before I can switch POVs yeah. and tell you what the other person is thinking, right? Right. And that is a really difficult thing to do when you're writing and to think about like, well, when does it switch? Um and she doesn't – she sort of avoids that as a yeah. convention. Whenever it needs terrific. to switch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed it too. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is is when I edit, I think there's a lot of pressure. So, okay, there's a couple things that you and I have talked about that I think about a lot when I'm editing. Like so one is you tell the, the – if, if you're struggling with whose point of view it should be, it's like the character that has the most to lose – Right. Should be. You've said that before. And I really think about that a lot. But I think the problem with the like kind of this person, this person, like like a really even sort of like one, then two, one, then two or one, two, three or whatever, is that then you really feel like, okay, I have to tell this. I have to tell this scene from this character's point of view. It's their turn. Which is a huge problem. Yes. Yeah, because often it's not their turn yet. Often it's not their turn yet. And yet I think there's something really punishing in some ways about that belief that it has to be kind of even or equal. And so by cutting loose from all of that, right, like the book can just take the turn it needs to take. Sometimes a new chapter starts, sometimes it's interwoven, but it really is like paragraph to paragraph at times. And I found myself thinking, it also, I think, really felt, it just felt really fluid because these are people who are, yeah, but also like it really reflected for me how they were, they were off, they were both in new territory, Right? Like mm-hmm. they were both out doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing, weren't sure how if they were should be doing yeah. whatever, right? One of my favorite lines of this book is there's a part where um I did a I did a lot I did a lot of highlighting, but there was one part, and I think it's when they're with Lady Ling and and you know, they kind of go in and Eileen thinks social etiquette had no provision for dining with a man who wasn't your husband and a former concubine. <laughs> Like, she's like, I don't even actually know because in a life that has been so regimented where everything for her, 
right, has been so determined by a, like a certain set of how she's supposed to act. I thought it was just really cool in a way. And so in a way, that idea that like the fluidity of like what's happening, her making meaning out of it and trying to come, like grapple with it made sense because everything was up in the air. Nothing yeah. made sense anymore, right? You know, I think, yes, I think that's 100% true. I also think like there's something really magnificent about the way that um, Jeannie untethers Eileen especially, and then re-ties her to Ram. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Mila Finelli, author of the Kings of Italy duet, beginning with Mafia Mistress. And we've talked about these books before on Faded Mates, but it's a very exciting time because they're both available for reading in audiobook. Mafia Mistress is a dark romance, obviously, by the name, right? Um, Fausto is our Mafia Don. He actually lives in Italy and goes to Canada to find a bride for his- Find! To find, to kidnap. I think they uh, bargain. Um, <laughs> bride for his 19-year-old son. But then Francesca turns out to be the exact right woman for him. Whew. This book is, besides being hot as blazes, as they say, <laughs> it's also perfect for anybody who loves an age gap romance, a little bit of daddy kink in their romance, a romance that, you know, swoons about Italy. Kidnapping, all that stuff. It's all the good stuff. We're super excited this week because Mila Finelli, for Fated Mates listeners only, has offered the first chapter of the audiobook for Mafia Mistress at the end of the episode. So stay tuned then to get all of that. Otherwise, you can get the book in Kindle Unlimited and in print. Yep. You can find out more about Mila at her website, milafinelli.com, or on Facebook or Instagram at Mila Finelli Author. Thanks to Mila for sponsoring this week's show. One of my favorite moments in the book is right after she discovers, she talks to her mother and she discovers her mother is about to become a second wife. Right. And she's so, she's McCreeve brain, right? Like she's like spinning out yes. about like what, how could this that be? she believed to be true about her family is suddenly like in chaos and none of it is true. And she's starting to see the world for what it is. And she thinks to herself, I just wish he was here, right? Like, I wish I had him. And of course, we know this is because, like, they're falling in love and it's a romance novel and all of those things. But also, it's that she has been untethered over this journey and he has helped her navigate it. Yeah. And not because he's smarter or stronger or better, but because he is hers. Like, he is for her. Yeah. And... He cares most about her. And, yeah. like, mm. she can't articulate that in that moment, but she knows it to be true. And it is so deeply romantic. Like, there oh is God. Yes. a true sense of these characters being made for each other. Yeah. And that the way that that they try to explain that to each other. I mean, like, so I I typically, when I read, I don't do a ton of highlighting, but I feel like I really did. But there are, like, really great, and I, I, I appreciate the, the care with which, right, like, they're trying to talk to each other. And so at one point he says, I don't want to say any t anything to you that I've ever said to another woman. And I was like... 
That's so, it's so romantic. It's so romantic, right? It's so beautiful. And I mean, part of it is the like sweeping landscape and the like magnificent setting and like this sense of this very like beautiful historical, like it really nails the high fantasy of historical. That's what I want to talk about next. I really wanted to talk about this as a historical and one of the things that I have really come to feel, and maybe I'm in a bobblist as I try to explain it, I've been really finding myself being drawn to historical because mm-hmm. I feel like the stakes are just higher, mm-hmm. right? You can just make the stakes higher because ruination, your father's the emperor, <laughs> he's the white devil, right? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you literally should not be Mm -hmm. with this man. There is no way for you to be with this man. That, to me, was – and, you know, I've read this book before, and every time when I get to the end, I'm like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Right? Like, just – and and especially when – the other thing that I thought was amazing and I – is when they are together, it feels perfectly right. Mm-hmm. And the minute they are not together anymore, you're like, it's never going to work out. Right. Right. And I was like, how did that happen? It's like magic. But the second that he essentially it sends stakes. her off to shoot, yes, are the so stakes high. are And that so is a high. historical thing, yes. right? Like, it yeah. just doesn't work as well in contemporary ever. Yeah. And, and, there, oh God, it's so good. It's so good because there are these magnificent moments within it where you really, you can't see how it's going to work out, right? Like right. I say all the time, like, why can't they be together? Like 17 ways. Like there are yeah. tons of reasons why they can't yeah. be together. And, and to the point where I was like, how can this ever yeah, work what out? Is I mean, it happen because yeah. this is crazy. There's no way. Going There's no here. way. Yeah. Right. Well, and listen. Okay, I'm gonna say something now. Or I'm just like, if you stop and think about like how a person comes into your life, it's kind of amazing. It always feels a little like magic, right? Mm-hmm. How did these two come in? Like, right? Like the the millions of decisions that got made. Like literally in 758. If your person is on the other side, and look, I know that not everybody believes in your person, but I'm a romance reader and I do. If your person is grows up in Turkey and you are growing up in China, mm-hmm. game over. And yet they found each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you, this it fucking moved me. I did. I, I, it's a great I, book. Of course it did. <laughs> I know. But I just, right, like I think that that's something that this book really effectively plays around with, which is, like I said, the, when they're together, you're like, of course they're together. They're perfect for each other. And then the minute they're separated, you're like, "There's she's this emperor's daughter. She's got to go marry this Lee Tao guy." Yeah, and she he says comes to him, from nowhere. Right? Like he has no, he has yeah. no like family, no no past, no name, no, no money, like, no nothing. Yeah. Right? All he has is his father's sword and his love for this woman. <sighs> it's great. It's, it is. Some, I mean, like. I I just have on my notes like this is some real hero shit right like it's yes. just like, yes. He is yes a textbook yeah. hero and like yeah. I say that he is heroic on so many levels and then on right. top of it he 
just is he is a perfect he is central casting romance hero like everything he does is romance hero shit and i love it I loved I love it too. It. And she, I felt the same. Okay, so there's like, okay, there's this part where they're together, right? In at her family's home. Mm-hmm. And she and it and in the tree is like carved all the names of the family members and like a game they play. Mm-hmm. And he she carves his name in her language into the tree. And I was just like, I cannot fucking stand this book. So like good. how? Like just every little moment like that. It just was like, I mean, I I just really feel like if somebody was like, give me a romance that like make is like the way you feel, right? This is the mm-hmm. way you want to feel when you read a romance. This book to me really does it. And I I think Okay, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, because I think also there is something to this adventure piece. Yes, right. And I think we should talk about that because I think this book scratched a niche for me. I mean, like, I love, you know, you know, I love this book, but I think it scratched a niche for me that is a particular itch that I'm feeling right now. Yeah. And like we've talked about this on the on the podcast before. Those of you who, who listen regularly know that like. I am really looking for, like, romances where shit happens, right? And this is a book where so much is happening on page. And still, it is about the romance more than anything else, which is all I really want. Like, I want beautiful people blowing things up. And fighting. Fighting with swords. As Joanna Schultz. Riding on horses. Justifiably getting punched in the face, but also lots of making out. And like, that's what this book delivers to me. It is, it is a, it is a like adventure movie with kissing. I actually am like, how has this never been made into a movie? I don't even understand what people are doing. Okay. I want to talk about gender. Because I think it's really interesting the role that Ailee plays in her family as the youngest daughter. But I also think, right, and how this is not really, like, none of her fight is really about, like, fighting that, right? Like, she's just like, this is the way my fa- we were raised as a family to, like, no honor. And, you know, fourth brother was killed by Lee Tao, and so I cannot marry him. It right. would be completely wrong. Right. But I also think, you know, there's ways that she gets teased by being a girl, right, for not knowing the things that she should know, um, right, for just being, you know, essentially – and yet at the same time, like, when she meets Lady Ling, who is this beautiful woman – you know, the most beautiful woman in China, essentially, because she was the concubine of the previous emperor – she feels that sense of, like, I'm, like, this, like, urchin. I'm all dirty and my hair is all matted and gross. I mean, it's, like, she really feels, you know, at, at times this being torn, I think, between kind of, like, youngest daughter, daughter, right? Like, kind of what do, what do I want? Do I get to make decisions for myself? But I think there's also plenty of things about this book. Like, one of my favorite scenes of this book is they eventually meet fifth brother who's her favorite right so she's six he's the one right above her and um (laughs) ram has to essentially fight him for her honor but brother number five is a terrible swordsman (laughs) right (laughs) 
he's awful at it. And Riam is kind of like, I'm really not sure what I'm supposed to be doing here, but I think it's really important that I look like I take this as a serious, like, sword fight. (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then he's kind of like, you know, oh, you beat me, so I guess it's okay. Like, you can, you know, hang out with my (laughs) sister or whatever. But even then at the end, when, you know, when they fight, when he fights Li Tao, and it's essentially a fight for honor, it's that, it's a, it's now, it's like, it's for real, right? It's the same thing that happened with her brother, but now it's for real. And we want to think that Lee Tao is sort of a scumbag. And I mean, I guess he is, but it becomes even clearer to Riam at some point, like, oh, he's really thinks he's protecting her. He really thinks that I have, you know, taken her virginity and her good name and he Mm -hmm. is doing something right here. And so I just thought like everybody has a lot of dignity in this book. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that is. I love this book. I love this book so much. No, it's great. And there are no, what's fascinating is there really like are no bad dudes in this right. book. Yeah. Everyone has, yeah. well, of course, Lee Tao has to be, if he's going to be a future hero, he has to end up being a little he more has sympathetic to sort than himself we thought. out, right? Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's very. It's interesting because when Jeannie was on the podcast and we talked about, you know, her career and that time period, right, like 2010, we talked Mm -hmm. about how there was something going on right then in historicals, right? Like it was the tail end of, of, you know, big historical, like the big historical, the last big historical movement. And like the truth is, is that historicals have ebbed and flowed over the years. And, um, but- I think what was really fascinating about all of the writers who came up right around then, and I'm thinking about, you know, me, Tessa Dare, Courtney Milan, uh, Jeannie. There are bad people in the books, but nobody is like a cookie cutter. And so there's something, I don't know, something started to happen in historicals right around then. We're like, even... Even the char- the characters who might have been flat Stanleys earlier were now starting to be complex. Yeah. Yeah. I just think the way this, like, push-pull between I, – I, like, I mean, like, the, the longing in this book is so good. We get mine in this book. And it's probably about, right, it's like I, they probably either, maybe they just had sex, I can't remember, and he thinks mine, right? And I was like, yeah, but then he thinks, right, for as long as she would have him to mm. the ends of the earth if oh, she well, needed him there, right? Because here's the thing. It also has, like, Sarah McLean, like, oh yeah, the most important thing that ever, <laughs> like, the only thing I ever want from a hero, which is I'm never going to be good enough for her. Oh, right? completely. Like, I and, Yes. I am just lucky enough to like to like <laughs> sit in her presence yes. sometimes when she will like Yes. Yes. But like well, basically she should not allow me to sit with her because I am nothing. I'm nothing, right? <laughs> and he knows this. I yeah, I completely love oh, it. But you know what? So much. <laughs> the reason that this also though plays out in this amazing way is so, you know, at the end, Li Tao has them both, right? And he's torturing Riam over in the dungeon or whatever, and he says to her, you know, I'm a man of my word. 
So if you agree willingly to marry me, because she has basically said, like, you can force me to marry you, but at one night I will knife you and you won't know when, but it's going to happen. <laughs> I, I love her. And he's like, well, you are pretty good at swords, so I'm going to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. But he says, um, Li Tao says, I'm a man of my word, so I will tell you, if you, I will, if you willingly agree to marry me, mm-hmm. then I will let him go. Mm-hmm. And so she agrees to it so because, she does. She, of course, Obviously. she loves him, right? She just wants him to live. And he cannot believe no, he's- that she, Listen, that cannot be because she is so much better than him. And for her to sacrifice her everything she wanted in her entire life and her honor when he's just this nobody. I mean, he like – talk about McReeve braid. And I'm not going to lie to you. Like that whole last 15 percent where like, you know, you think – you know, she's getting dressed in the beautiful wedding garments Mm -hmm. and stuff. You're like, how is this going to work out? What is going to happen? How is it going to work out? But it does because oh, sure, sure. sure. Jeannie Lynn pulls it out. Oh it's my god! Great. You know, oh, it's so good. It's it really is like it's such a good lesson. Mm-hmm. It's such a good textbook. Yeah, man, and it's a first book. Stop <laughs> it. Stop it. I don't even know how you all people like live with that. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> sorry everybody. This book's perfect. Yeah, it's great. Oh, I want to talk about grandma, although we kind of did talk about grandma. We talked about grandma. Can we talk about how the moment when the grandmother says to her, like, um, I fought for myself. Like, when the grandmother talks about marriage, Mm -hmm. she says, like, I basically said, like, I would would only marry a man who could beat me. Yes. At swordplay. Mm-hmm. And so... And she, like, fought and won like, however many, you know, 20 fights or whatever. Right. And then, like, in came your grandfather, and he was perfect looking, and I was super into him, and so I let him win. And until he died, I let him think that he beat me. And it was such – I, like, I love that moment for, for a lot of reasons. I love it because it also, like – kind of reflects their like scarring and I like I like a lot of the like symmetry of that moment but I also love the acknowledgement that often women yes (laughs) and they like let men think that like whatever was done was done because they were men and they were you know strong and powerful and like I loved in this in this book there were several moments where I felt like wives were taking on, I don't know, is it burden? I don't know. Or like they were, wives were like the shown as the stronger. Yeah. And, and that's, and at the end when she makes her sacrifice, she sacrifices herself for him, right. In this like really noble act. And I think that Jeannie is going back to what you were saying about gender, right? Like it feels like Jeannie is saying a thing here about the way that women, Women's yeah. roles establish, like, hold power and hold yeah. space. Well, and I really like that. I mean, you have Lady Ling. You have oh, yeah. Eileen's mother. You have her grandmother. 
And all of them, and I don't know if people remember when Jeannie was on um, talking, you know, we were kind of like, why the tank, why this dynasty? Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, this was actually a time when there was like more forward progress for women. And, you know, there was, you know, there's some, some loosening of some restrictions so that like some of these things could take place. But ultimately, like these are women who understand the world they're in and then figure out how to navigate it. And I think that that's why this is so, like, deeply romantic is because at the end, right, at the end, you know, Riam essentially is like, I – he can tell his soldiers. He, like, sends them off, right? He, like, says honor. He knows, like, the right word to say. And and they're kind of like, I can't believe that you're turning your – you're essentially taking on the, like, Chinese ways. And But he knows, like, this is the only way I can be with her. Right, I have to show her, and I have to show her father, even if it kills me, that I had honor for her. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, it's so good. It's so romantic. He says, "Bring me, bring me the fastest horse," because he's <laughs> going to chase her after her. That's after some she's been real hero shit. <laughs> some real hero shit, right? <laughs> oh. Man, I love this book. I yeah, do. Yeah, I'm really glad we read it now. It feels like Yeah. It feels like it was a book that I I wanted right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this it, it's kind of like this they are it's you know, there's a lot of interesting conversations in romance about, you know, conflict and character and plotting and you know, they are always for each other. But the conflict here is, like, 800 miles deep, mm-hmm. right? And then you just have to believe that, like, okay, but with love, anything really is possible. Yeah. I mean, and you can't – This the struggle is, like, this particular book holds – and, again, it's that – it's that something that historical offers, right, in a way that, yeah. like, f- sometimes fantasy offers it, too, this kind of, like – sense of all the all the emotions are dialed up to 11 all the conflict is dialed up to 11 there's a real sense of like life and death here mm-hmm. also when she you know paints this portrait of like tang dynasty she says like there are a couple of moments where like people slip and use first names or like given names instead of like you know honorifics and it's basically like oh you could be killed for saying yeah. that name out loud and like there are it's everything feels like it it's heavy in a yeah. way and so like love in this context love in this world has to feel so big and mm-hmm. so powerful that you can't resist it. You choose it over the threat of all these other things. And yeah. it is great. It's so good. Mm. Mm-hmm. I hope everyone out there reads it, although we gushed ridiculously about it. So, of course, they will. It's great. I it hope, is great. I hope everybody buys it. I hope we sell a million copies. Me too. That will be justice in the world. Okay, Sarah, a little bit yes. of housekeeping. Yes. Do we know what we're reading next? It's like Virginia Henley. It's Virginia Henley, right? It's The Dragon and the Jewel. Now, 
I want to caveat this with. (laughs) I will tell the full story of my experience with the dragon and the jewel on the podcast when we do this episode. Okay. But I want to say content warnings, I'm sure. Um, You know, if you're some, check your content warnings. I have not read this book in about 25 years. So, <laughs> right? You never That's know about what's right. Happen, like, right? I mean, I probably was in my early 20s, so 20 years. And so I have no idea what we're getting into. We're just flying by the seat of our pants here. Um, and you know what? If we get deep in, if we get like, I don't know, 100 pages in and we decide, mm, maybe not, we'll cancel it and we'll announce it on the podcast that we're doing something else. But right now, it's right. the Dragon and the Jewel. And uh, I'm excited because Virginia Henley's a wild ride. One of the things I'm hoping is with the context of the Trailblazers, mm. when we go back to like a really old school romance, that people are able to kind of like read it in the context of that time, right? Like what was romance like then? What was it doing? How was it different? And I just think it's just a different experience, right? This is not the Virginia Henley book that we are reading, but there is another very famous Virginia Henley moment where the heroine, who is a virgin, sees the hero in all of his nude glory (laughs) and looks at his balls and says, they were like two swan's eggs in a dark nest. And I got to tell you, like, that's the vibe we're working with. So just be prepared. (laughs) Amazing. I can't wait. I will figure out what book that is. The Two Swan's Eggs in the Darkness. Someone's going to know. But also, like, Swan's Eggs? That sounds like maybe there's a medical issue. (laughs) So specific. Also, as you know, I don't write about balls, so. It's true. It's true. So you don't have any, we don't, you know. I've never written a swan's egg. (laughs) As it should be, honestly, it's fine. Thank you to Charlotte Howard and Mila Finelli for sponsoring this week's show. You can stick around right now and listen to Mila Finelli's Mafia Mistress in audio. Um, Give it a taste and then if you like it, head over to Amazon or Audible and check it out. As always, thanks to all of our sponsors. You can find more information in show notes about all of them. Chapter 1. Francesca. Toronto, Ontario. I met the devil the morning after my 18th birthday. Hungover and tired, I rolled over in bed, where my toes brushed against warm skin and crisp body hair. A friend of mine held a graduation party last night at her pool, and my boyfriend, David, slept over after. We usually hooked up at his apartment, but I was too drunk last night and insisted on coming here. It hadn't been easy sneaking him into the house under the watchful gaze of the cameras monitored by Papa's men, but I was a pro. I'd been outsmarting the guards and the cameras for years now. The one thing the guards loved? Routine. Once you learned the routine, you could get around it and do whatever you wanted. Papa was the head of one of the seven families of the Ndrangheta in Toronto, a criminal network that stretched from Canada to South America to Italy. My father's business was dangerous, so my two sisters and I weren't raised as typical teenagers. Wherever we went, we were trailed by guards with guns inside their jackets, including to school. 
Our extracurricular activities were severely limited. Our lives kept under careful scrutiny. Which was why I couldn't help but occasionally sneak out. I was the responsible one, the big sister who began caring for my two younger siblings when our mother died. I deserved a break every now and then. A knock sounded at my door. Frankie, are you awake? My father. Shit. Panic filled me. The first night I dared to have my boyfriend sleep over, and my father was outside my door. This could not be good. Hangover forgotten, I grabbed David's shoulders. You have to get out of here, I mouthed silently. Like, now. David nodded and hurried to dress while I handed him his clothes. I looked at the door. Papa, don't come in. I'm not dressed. You need to get up and look presentable, he said from the hall. We have guests. Guests? It was barely nine o'clock. I'll need at least an hour, I said. You have ten minutes. I could hear the command in his voice. All right, I called. David zipped up his jeans and threw on his t-shirt. I opened the window and looked down. My bedroom was on the second floor, so it was high, but not a death-defying jump. Hang down from the window ledge, and you should be fine. A rough hand slid over my bare ass. Maybe it's time for me to meet your family, babe. The idea almost made me laugh. My father would strangle David with his bare hands for daring to touch his precious daughter. You have to go. Keep to the side of the house and out of sight. There is a path on the left, and it leads to a wall. The cameras won't see you there. Hurry. He pressed a hard kiss to my mouth, then crawled out the window. I watched as he slowly lowered himself down, his biceps bulging with the effort. Before we graduated last month, he'd been one of the most popular boys in our senior class and captain of the hockey team. I was going to miss him when I left for college in August. David dropped to his feet and then gave me a salute. I blew him a kiss and shut the window, my mind already racing to papa and the guests. After a quick shower, I braided my wet hair and dabbed concealer under my eyes. A swipe of mascara later, I threw on a prim dress that covered most of my body, as my father preferred. Instead of flats, I put on a pair of heels. I was tall, but I liked the way I looked in heels. Like nothing could stop me. Intimidating. Fierce. The house was quiet, my sisters still asleep. The 16-year-old twins, Emma and Gia, usually stayed up well into the night, watching movies and talking to their friends online. I would miss them when I went away to school. But they didn't need me as much these days. They would be fine after I left. My heels popped on the marble floors as I approached my father's office. I rarely went in here, seeing as how I'd rather not know what Papa was really doing most of the time. Ignorance was bliss when it came to having a family member in the mafia, let alone running it. I knocked and waited until I heard my father's voice telling me to come in. He was seated behind his desk, and the room was full of men in suits. Some faces were familiar, like Uncle Reggie and my cousin Dante, but the others were strangers. 
and they all stared at me. Francesca, come in. My father stood and buttoned his suit jacket. Swallowing my nerves, I approached his desk. You wanted to see me? Yes, this is Fausto Ravazzani. A man unfolded from the armchair, and my heart leapt into my throat. I'd never seen such a handsome man before, one with such thick, wavy dark hair and piercing blue eyes. He was trim, with a chiseled jaw and broad shoulders, and his suit fit him perfectly. He looked to be in his late 30s, and under any other circumstances, I would have guessed him a former model or actor. No one looked and dressed like this unless they were dependent on their looks for a living. But this was no prima donna. Power rolled off his taut frame in waves, like he was in control of everyone and everything around him. The men accompanying him clearly weren't his friends. They were guards. He was someone important, someone worth protecting. And he seemed dangerous. I nodded once. Mr. Ravazzani. His eyes drifted over my face and down my body as if I were a horse he was considering purchasing. Tingles broke out along my skin wherever he looked, but I couldn't tell if it was from excitement or embarrassment. Even more confusing, my nipples hardened in my thin bra, which I hoped he wouldn't notice. The smirk on his face when he met my gaze told me he was aware of the state of my nipples. You are 18. The words rolled out of his mouth with an Italian accent, and my heart gave an ominous thump in my chest. Were these men from Toronto? I doubted it. No one in my father's employ had an accent this thick. Yes, sir. He nodded once to my father. She'll do. She'll do. Do for what? I asked. My father shot me a quick look before addressing Ravazzani. Excellent. We'll plan the wedding for next month. Wedding? I screeched. No, no, no. I was supposed to go to college first. My mother made my father promise that all three of their daughters would be educated before marriage. I was counting on it. What wedding? Quiet, Francesca. My father hissed. I glanced at my cousin, hoping to find answers, but Dante wouldn't meet my eye, which meant this was bad, really bad. Normally, he relished my unhappiness. One of Ravazzani's men entered and leaned down to speak in his ear. The edge of Ravazzani's mouth curled as he listened, then he waved the man away. Returning his attention to my father, he said, No. The wedding will take place at my home in Siderno, where Giulio resides. We leave tomorrow. Giulio? And wait, Siderno? As in Italy? What the fuck was happening? Lines deepened on my father's forehead. But what about me and my family? We have a right to... Stiffening, Ravazzani glared at my father, and the mood in the room went arctic. Be very, very careful, Roberto, he said softly. 
you lost your rights when you lost my shipment. Yikes. No one moved, and the moment stretched. I'd never seen anyone put my father in his place before. No one had ever dared. I held my breath until my father finally put up his hands. Mi dispiace, he apologized. This appeared to appease Ravazzani, but I still had no idea what they were talking about. Will someone please tell me what is going on? I blurted, unable to hold back any longer. Ravazzani moved quickly, stepping closer until he towered over me. His irises were so blue, with hints of gray, but they didn't seem angry. Instead, he appeared amused. You have spirit, that's good. You will need it, Piccolina. Walking around me, he went to the door, trailed by five of his men. I expect her ready, Mancini, he said over his shoulder. Anger burned in my chest. Expected me ready? Like I was a piece of luggage? No one was carting me off to Italy. I was going to school in New York City, not getting married to some scary Italian man who was most definitely in the mafia. When the door closed, I rounded on my father. Papa, what is this all about? He dragged a hand down his face and dropped into his chair. Uncle Reggie and Dante didn't move, but the rest of my father's men left the room. Sit, Frankie. I'd rather not. I'd rather stand until I know what's happening. Papa slapped a hand against the surface of his desk. For fuck's sake, do as you're told. I hated when he spoke to me so coldly, like I was one of his men. Dante shook his head, clearly indicating he thought I was an idiot, and Uncle Reggie wore his usual frown. Pushing away the hurt and confusion, I slid into a chair. There. Now please explain what is happening. You have been chosen to wed Ravazzani's heir, Giulio. It's a good match, Frankie. An honor, really. An honor? I stared at the man who'd promised I would receive a college degree before marriage, who said I could have my choice in a husband. Empty lies, every single one. Absolutely not. I won't marry some stranger in Italy. I don't want a mafia husband. I'm going to school in the fall. My father's face hardened into a scary expression, one I'd never seen before. I suspected this was his Nadrina face, the mafia leader who did terrible things with no remorse. You will do as you are told, or people will die. People in this family. Is that what you want? The thread hung in the air between us, and I thought of my twin sisters upstairs, asleep and trusting, with no idea I was being forced to choose a life I didn't want to secure their safety. It's no choice at all. I would do anything for them. Though I was just two years older, I had been the one to care for them after my mother's death. I taught them about boys and periods, helped them buy bras, dried their tears, and managed their screen time. The backs of my eyelids started to burn. Why is this happening? Alliances through marriage are a part of our world. 
There is nothing anyone can do to prevent this. I expect you to do your duty and make Julio happy. I pressed a hand to my stomach, trying to ease the sudden cramping of my insides. How had my future changed so drastically? But you promised, I said weakly, fighting tears. His expression didn't budge. My promises to the Ndrangheta come first. Now, do not dishonor me. This is an opportunity for us to gain more power through your husband's family. Ravazzani is one of the wealthiest men in Italy, the head of one of the largest clans, the Ndrina, which bears his name. Power, wealth, was that all anyone cared about? I rubbed my eyes, uncaring if I smeared my mascara. This isn't fair. Grow up, Frankie. Dante sneered. Ravazzani is one of the highest ranking men in all of the Ndrangheta. You'll be married to his son, who will inherit everything one day. Any woman in our circle would kill for this chance. Screw you, Dante. I don't want to marry a boss. I snapped. I want to go to school and get a degree. Like I had been promised. College meant freedom from my father and his men. It meant living in New York City and going to clubs and bars, dating boys and drinking too much. I would study and have a career and live a normal life before I had to marry. It was all my mother had wanted for her girls. Be your own woman, Francesca. Don't make my mistakes. She was a top Italian model before she met and married my father. While their marriage had been a love match at first, she said she always regretted giving up her career for him. Stop, my father said. You're acting childish. It's been decided. Go up and pack your things. I expect you to be ready first thing tomorrow. But not another word, Francesca. You are leaving with Fausto Ravazzani, and that is final. I pressed my lips together and rose. The men said nothing as I left, thinking I'd agreed. That I'd willingly cross an ocean and marry a man I hadn't met, just because my father screwed up with some mysterious shipment. They should have known better.